Most of us and most of our friends are pretty predictable in our thinking. Oh, sure, you can find the R's and the D's and the L's are pretty predictable in their own clicks, but sometimes there comes a person who sees things differently. My guest today sees and thinks about things differently than I do, and that's a perspective I value. Normal and comforting are boring, and boring is dangerous, for you miss out on new ideas. You don't have to like or accept new ideas, but without them, we can't grow. Without growth, there is stagnation, and just look at the candidates for president, and you see what stagnation gets you. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 109. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello folks, Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Cooking for Comfort. My cookbook is available on Amazon. You can also visit culinarylibertarian.com slash cooking for comfort to view some cook-submitted photos and download the introduction PDF to get a flavor of what the book is about. There are also links on that page to purchase the book. Recent former guest Michael Rechtenwald, who talked about the Frankfurt School, postmodernism, and cultural Marxism, now has a course on these subjects at Liberty Classroom. Use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash critical theory, to sign up to Liberty Classroom and listen to Michael's course. My guest today is Rebecca Dillingham, who podcasts and blogs under the name Dissident Mama. Her tagline is, Smashing Sacred Cows with a Bang, Not a Whimper. Rebecca graduated the University of Wisconsin-Madison and is a retired mainstream journalist turned domestic bell and rabble-rousing rhetorician. She describes herself as Virginian by birth, Carolinian by choice, a recovering feminist socialist atheist who now is a truth warrior, Jesus follower, wife, boy mom, and a lifelong learner. She's also an apologetics practitioner for Orthodox Christianity, the Southern tradition, homeschooling, and freedom. Before we get to Rebecca, the dissident mama, I owe dissident daddy-o an earnest and giant thank you. There were some tech issues that he was able to tackle, and that made this episode possible. So, thank you for your help. I do appreciate it. Rebecca, thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So before we get rolling here, I'm interested just to get a little bit of your background. I just gave the people a little bit of your bio, but I really want that part to come from you. You were, so just to recap, you were not always a libertarian, and if there is a specific brand of that you prefer, we can get to that part. How did you find your way to liberty? 
Uh, slowly, but surely, and I'm still learning new stuff all the time, that um, I don't even know if I would call myself a libertarian anymore, because that term has become, or maybe it's always been, there's debate on that, but um, a little confusing, um, maybe not just meaning liberty so much anymore. That could be a, a question maybe that we could talk about later, but uh, I would call myself always learning, a lifelong learner, and um, definitely um, a fan of human liberty and human flourishing. But I have also come to believe that um, there should be checks on things, not governmental checks, but perhaps uh, norms uh, uh probably relegated to the sphere of culture, um, you know, community, those types of things. Um, so it's not just like do whatever feels good. So um, where I would call myself a libertarian, you know, 10 years ago, I'm now, I guess, kind of sort of in the paleocon vein, but there's even, you know, that's a big tent too. So um, I came to it just slowly but surely in college i was uh just a sponge grew up in kind of a reagan republican household wasn't really prepared for what college was back in the 1990s so i kind of just soaked that all in thinking oh my gosh this is the truth i've never been told this before it has been hidden from me it is the secret so because back then you know the public schools that i went to they weren't complete bastions of political correctness. Um, my high school, my community was still kind of just, you know, run of the mill conservative. So when I got to college, it seemed like the scales were being pulled off and, you know, the curtain was being pulled back and I was seeing these things that had been hidden from me my whole life. So I dumped in, dumped in, <laughs> it was kind of a dump. I dove into the deep end of atheism, feminism, I guess socialism, but because I was a child of that generation, because my parents hadn't, you know, yes, they maybe hadn't prepared me for college, but they also taught me right from wrong, you know, don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, those kinds of things, basics. Um, I think my definition of even socialism back then was still, oh, yeah, you know, respect people's property, but you know, we should just willingly want to give more of our money to government because it helps people. So I was kind of naive in that vein. But, you know, I think back to when I started hearing new opinions in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I started coming out of that and getting married didn't hurt. So I got married in 2000. And that changes you too. Um, well before I had kids, but you start, golly gee, thinking about other people and just not yourself. Uh, even back then, I don't think I ever wanted to silence people. I'm sure I cried when people told me things I didn't want to hear because I was a unhinged feminist. But, um, you know, I eventually opened my ears and listened and, and listened and people planted seeds. And that's how I have gotten to where I am now. And I know some people would say, well, she's always changing. You know, how can we believe her? Well, I mean, because life is a lifelong learning process and nobody has a monopoly on truth. So... It was long kicking and screaming process, getting here, getting married, having kids after seven years of marriage, you know, and then finally I'm to my way here. And it's just learning that and reading things that I don't always agree with um, that got me to where I am now. You know, I'm, I don't, this is, there's some really fascinating content there and it could easily derail my plan for the show to make the observation that 
our parents probably were very similar in a lot of ways, and maybe that goes to our grandparents as well. And my grand, my grandfather drove a streetcar in Detroit during the Depression, so there was a there was a very strong sense of if you want something, go work for it and find a way to work for it. He lied about his age to get the job because it was important to have a job so you could put food on the table. My mother made sure. We, we as kids were always exposed to different ideas. You didn't have to agree with them. You didn't even have to like them. But what was important was hearing alternative, alternative ideas from your own to get to exposure to some other ways of thinking about things. Even if you don't accept it, it broadens, it, it changes you in ways you may not see immediately. And and while I give my mother lots of credit for lots of things, that's one of the things to her great credit that she did for all the kids was was demand that we expose ourselves intellectually to things we may not agree with because we would be better people for it. And I think that as a uh, way to live. I don't know. That's not the right phrase, but that seems to be missing. I don't know what happened. But anyway, let's, <laughs> let's not go down that rabbit hole because um, it's interesting, but that's not what I want. I have some other things I want to ask. So you run the Dissident Mama website. Correct. What is not plain, let me ask that again, what is not plain from the name? And is there an area or a subject you focus on? No. <laughs> if it's uh, current events, if it's faith-based because of something I forgot in that chat earlier was uh, I came to Christianity also in 2000 2006, 2007. So there were a lot of um, a lot of things happening. So I can talk about um, faith stuff. Uh, I went from being an atheist to a Protestant. Now I'm an Orthodox Christian. So that's always juicy. I'm a homeschooler. I'm an, uh, very much a proponent, um, an ambassador for the movement, because I think anyone and everyone, despite income, despite class level, despite their own knowledge or ignorance of things can do it because it is something that um, I'm constantly redeeming my own education through homeschooling. And um, again, lifelong learning. Um, you know, I learn right alongside with my kids, um, you know, politics. Uh, and then in the last, I would say, I guess 10 years or so, somewhere along the way, I discovered the Abbeville Institute. Somewhere along the hmm. way, I discovered Brian McClanahan. And I actually don't know exactly when that happened. But um, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. So I, you know, had a soft spot for, you know, the South and the Confederacy. I was pretty sure, you know, I had some Confederate ancestors, you know, just both my parents were from Virginia. Um, and then in college, I, you know, took some women's studies classes that, you know, I mean, this was mid nineties, you know, doing the whole, you know, bashing the flag, you know, talking about how the South is the biggest evil of all. And, you know, it's the, to blame for all this stuff, slavery, 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 all that kind of thing. Um, well, somewhere along the way, I just rediscovered my roots and my love of the Southern tradition and how it really does probably more than anything other than my Orthodox faith define me as an individual 
and a part of something. So um, I talk about that a lot. You know, I do interviews. I've just been doing podcasts for, gosh, I started that early on in the quarantine. I think I'm at number 19. I just did my first um, video-based interview where you get to look at my beautiful, shining, happy face talking with somebody, a guy named Tim Kirby, who is fascinating. So I have a journalism degree, so I'm trying to tap back into that, not just writing, which I love, but I am not a short pithy writer. I'm a very much deep dive over research kind of person. It's a sickness, but I've had to embrace it because it's just the way God made me. So um, I usually do kind of deep dives um, a few times a month. I try to get more out than that than I can. But in the meantime, I fill in gaps talking to people and learning from people. And because I have gone through all these machinations in my own evolution, I guess you would call it. I've met a lot of really cool, interesting people along the way who I don't always agree with 100%, but we are civil. I mean, really, I've not interviewed anybody like I disagree with on like 99% of the things. Usually it's, you know, little nuances here and there. And that just makes things interesting. And I try to just let people talk. Tom Woods has been my inspiration on that. I think he's a great interviewer. He pretty much just lets his guests talk. And I think that's really nice. You know, I'll add my two cents in sometimes, but that's kind of my thing. And um, so Dissident Mama is pretty much anything that's not super conformist status quo i will talk about because <laughs> all that other stuff is boring <laughs> well the other stuff is boring and it doesn't really get it's it's hard to make boring incendiary yeah <laughs> it's just it and they're it's still boring so um so just, I, I know I mentioned this on your show, and one of the ways we sort of found each other in the digital world was your first piece on the Puritans. And mm-hmm. I didn't realize it was going to become a four-part piece. I was like, holy moly. I had five. no idea. Was, it five. was five. See? My gosh. Uh, well, I had no idea there was that much to say about them. But we started uh, texting and chatting over over the first one, and and so we've just become, you know, I guess, digital friends since then. And and yes, you definitely don't do the the, the short take on on things, but that's 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 not uh, that's to your credit. There's 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 too much short writing as it is, and and we need more because there's a lot to have. There's a lot to get from a from from the story. Um, oh, you're sweet. For my husband is like just right, like really glorified like Facebook posts. That's what people want. And I've got, God bless him. I've tried. It's just not my thing. And plus other people are doing that. I will say I do give myself a word count max at <coughs> 2000 words. Um, I very rarely go over. So, I mean, they're, you know, they're eight minute reads, really. They're not that long. Right. Well, <laughs> hit, hit, read um, unless, you, <laughs> unless you follow the links and then you're in a rabbit hole and yes. see you next week. Yes, that's true. That's true. Uh, you have what is almost certainly an unconventional idea about the 19th Amendment, which mm-hmm. removed the exclusion that women could not vote. This alone could be an entire episode, and we're not going to let it be, and you'll have to come back. But what unintended consequences, and I can't say that word, do you see arising <laughs> from this amendment? Uh, emotivism a lot, right? You know, um, 
feelings. Oh, I feel this and I feel that. And, you know, I am a woman and I do say that sometimes and feelings are okay. They definitely should be considered, but women come to their political worldview ideas so much through feelings. You know, again, that's kind of how we're made. We're we're protectors of our children. We're looking at long-term things of raising children to do a certain thing and, you know, how we want the world to be for them. You know, sometimes we're looking maybe too short-term because I think you have to look at long-term logical consequences a lot of times. You know, in the short-term, yes, let's give this program money because it's going to help that that guy and everybody's going to be happy. You know, I think emotivism plays into that. And women just are, it is a fact, they are more emotional and less logical. Does there mean, does that mean there cannot be emotional men or logical women? Absolutely not. But it is just an overwhelming um, pattern that is true. And I think you can I have looked for this graphic. I saw this graphic once years ago when I thought I was the only person on planet Earth that thought we should repeal the 19th Amendment. Apparently, there are more people like Alana Mercer, Ann Coulter, uh, some other people who are, you know, women who are outspoken, but agree that there was a, a downward descent of feel-good programs that only end up hurting people not only just the taxpayers, but usually the people they're intended to help too. And I think there's a correlation to that graph that I cannot find anymore. So if anybody can find it, send it to me, where somebody had done it, where you were looking at, you know, different kinds of laws, regulations um, at the federal level, because women could vote in some states before they could vote federally. There, there were quite a few states that let different kinds of women vote depending on all sorts of parameters. But at the federal level, you can look at the progressive deep dive from the 19th Amendment forward. Now, some people could say, what a, is that just a correlation? Because that was the progressive movement. You know, the social gospel was really big at the time. There were other things going on, absolutely. But I think that is what opened the door. The altruism of American men at that time that just thought, eh, yeah, let's give them the vote. What, what harm is it going to do? Well, I think it has done harm because um, I think women have much influence in modern times and have throughout all of history. If you even take a brief, brief view at any historic place at any time, women play a very key role, whether they have quote unquote power or not. Um, so we do have power in how we relate to the men in our lives and how we raise our children and all sorts of things. I mean, strong matriarchs can be more powerful sometimes than a woman holding a political position, I think, um, and have more positive influence. However, I think it has just, it played into that whole 20th century downward spiral of progressivism and, you know, opening the door for, you know, uh, the great society, all sorts of crazy things we're living with today that stem from that. But again, there were other things happening too, absolutely. Of course, if I'm going to bring you on, we're going to take the dissident mama view of the Supreme Court. But okay. before we do that, let's take a moment out for a word from my affiliate. On Wednesdays and Thursdays, my kid goes to school. Thursday, she comes home with homework to be done on Monday and Tuesday. 
They also send her home with what seems like the bottom of the pantry. Packaged snacks of sugar and chemicals and condiment packets and portions of breakfast cereal and 1% milk and even worse than that, fat-free, sugary chocolate milk. Between Monday and Tuesday, she spends about an hour each day doing her homework. What the heck was happening last year that took 180 days that this year is done in two days in the building and two hours at home? If your government school COVID experience is just like mine and you think you can do better for your kids, I want you to know you can. I recently did an episode on the Ron Paul homeschool curriculum. You can listen to that episode and get the scoop on how the Ron Paul curriculum can help your kids get their education back and how you can get your sanity back. Listen to the podcast and see more about the Ron Paul curriculum at culinarylibertarian.com slash 100. The episode is not all Ron Paul. I do discuss the Brian McClanahan Academy and the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. There is a lot of excellent content available which doesn't require government approval. These are three such programs. Learn more and click through to each at culinarylibertarian.com slash 100. Now let's get back to the show. All right, so here you are, and I can't miss this chance. Let's talk about the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, as of this recording, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has recently died. The level of hyperbole over the next justice is is just overwhelming. Share your thoughts, or some of them, not all of them, on the impact the Supreme Court has had on America, Americans, and perhaps, if at all, American culture, whatever that is. Well, um, you know, I would say definitely, I, I will give my take, but if you really want to know the history, read some Kevin Goodsman or some Brian McClanahan, listen to their podcasts. But, I mean, the Supreme Court just honestly is not supposed to have the power it has. It's just not, you know, and it's changed its form over the years. It wasn't always nine people in robes. Um, legislating from the bench, and it was different numbers of people. Um, I've just learned recently that early on in its uh, inception, you know, people didn't even want to be a part of it. You know, they'd be like, oh, you know, I just found out I was nominated to the Supreme Court. Um, I think I'd rather do almost anything else. It was kind of just not an afterthought, but again, it wasn't supposed to be this big power-wielding behemoth that it has become today. Um, and because of Listening to Brian McClanahan, I know that it did get kind of early on because of the John Marshall Court, um, the kind of the Hamiltonian vision of, you know, we want more centralized power. Um, This isn't going to just, you know, decide constitutional issues. It's going to throw issues back at the states that we don't think that the state should have purview to do, which, of course, is in direct contradiction to, you know, the 10th Amendment or whatever. So um, I think it's insane that everybody's losing their mind over it. It, it, but it does have an effect on our lives. You know, I mean, it just does. And what the Supreme Court does cannot be undone. I mean, it technically can, but it just never undoes anything. So the whole thing with uh, the new chick, what's her name? Barrett? Is that her last name? Oh, no, she has three names like everybody now. I'm just like, now we got to call her an acronym, too. I just get 
um, whatever, the lady, the lady going on the court with all the kids, um, <laughs> you know, uh, everybody's losing their mind over it and she's going to go and she's going to like overturn Roe. I mean, Roe v. Wade will never, ever, 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 ever be overturned. It just won't. Now, if America falls apart, right, maybe this whole abortion thing will go back to whatever remains, states or, you know, I don't know, some kind of settlements or whatever's left in the ashes, but it's just not going to. Now, she could do other things that should probably almost all be at the state level too. So I don't know to me, like I just, I haven't been following it that closely because to me, it's all just a symptom of the disease that it should not be a thing that I even probably know the people's names on the Supreme Court, you know, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, had moxie. Well, judges aren't supposed to have moxie. I'm sorry. They can in their personal life, but we're not supposed to laud a person for their moxie, which is what this lady did. And, you know, people go, well, she had to. No, she didn't. She could say, I'm going on there. I'm not going to have moxie. I'm going to follow the letter of the law, yada, yada. And that's what I'm going to do. So I don't know. And so, and then, you know, Christians are all into it because they love her because she's conservative and she has all these kids and the left's losing their mind because she has, you know, adopted black children. I mean, it's just a circus. So, I mean, I have my opinions on the matter. And yes, I do think that the Supreme Court has too much power that they should have. But um, I don't know. Is it really going to change that much? Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. <laughs> I don't know. I'm kind of black-pilled these days. So I'm just like, whatever. <laughs> well, and that's an interesting point that I don't know. I don't know how much is fundamentally going to change in the course of everyone's life. Right. Probably not really very much at all. And you've mentioned Brian McClanahan a couple of times. And one of the, aside from the issues he deals with on his podcast, his, one of his primary themes is the federal, the general government's dead. Forget about it. If you want to make change, vote in your township. Yeah. Vote where you live and spend money and, and drive because that's the place where if change happens, that's going to impact you immediately and directly. Mm -hmm. And so you at least you at least can engage in the system that way, or at least know what's going on and go to the town meetings. Or But the general government, forget about it. There's, there's, it's out of touch. It's out of reach. Yeah. And we're also, you know, we as in not unhinged leftists or whatever, whatever we are, um, we, you know, even ANCAPs, even libertarians, you know, we're generally kind of not rule followers as an insult. It's just, we're nice people and we, you know, people want order in their life, right? You know, so my thing is if the Supreme Court passes something and if your community or your state or your county doesn't want to do it, just don't freaking do it. You know, I mean, I forget what it was. Brian McClanahan would know the story, but it was something that the Supreme Court had passed and it, during Andrew Jackson's administration. And he's like, OK, whatever, come and enforce it. And he like it didn't even happen. Now, granted, he was the president, but there are plenty of times that there are regulations and rules on the book all the time. You know, we're all living under tyranny of law all the time. And if anybody looks close enough, we're all breaking probably five federal laws right now. But the point is just don't do it. And if you have a community or a county or a state or a canton or whatever the heck is coming down the pike, um, you know, it doesn't matter what nine 
overly zealous people in robes say. So I really do have an affinity for the think locally, act locally thing. Now, I also think there's a problem with community that we struggle to have that too. But in theory, it is the much better option because, uh, yeah, who cares if some people tell you what to do? Just don't do it. You know, (laughs) there are plenty of laws unenforced all the time. All right. Well, so one point, and, and Michael Bolden has made this point on his Tenth uh, Amendment Center Path to Liberty uh, show, uh, which is that the the court's opinions are only that mm-hmm. they're opinions. It isn't. It isn't a law. It's an opinion about a law. Uh, but your comment about community goes back to the beginning of our conversation, where I think. I, I like the idea, and I think I want to try to pursue it maybe for a blog piece or something. But the, in some sense, I think community has collectively surrendered itself to the state or the state mm-hmm. because, and now the because, now that's the why. Why did this happen? And I don't know that I could find the answer to that, but I think that this has happened that somehow. Deference has been given to the perceived authority, yet <laughs> it's it's also screwy because if you you know you take Rothbard's reduction down to finally the person, the person is the sovereign, the person is the authority of the person. Mm-hmm. You can't get better than that, and but now we're going off into rabbit holes and deep ends. So we'll avoid that part. <laughs> uh, because it, it's interesting to talk about, but I don't have any solutions. And yeah. I don't I don't want to ask questions that I can't answer, or at least have an idea about an answer. Well, I think one of the solutions is something that I'm not sure people are willing to do. And this is something at the end of my podcast interviews, I, you know, I'm I'm typically interviewing like-minded people on the fact that, you know, they think something needs to happen. Yes, centralization is stupid and yucky and horrible and tyrannical, so we need to do something smaller, closer to home. And, um, you know, a lot of it is just staying in place, building bridges where you live, not moving a time zone away for the next best job, right? You know, it is um, maybe, you know, moving back to where you came from, or, you know, not just the nuclear family, of which I'm obviously a huge fan, but it's the nuclear family isn't everything. I mean, multi-generational families, I think that's the way to go. That's how you really, I think, grow community. You put down roots either where you're from or where you are at now. And I mean, you know, they're there, you know, come hell or high water. And Americans just are not to that point yet. You know, I just think there's still comfort, convenience, you know, and I get it. 2020 is rough economically. You know, if you can make a little extra money, some people move, you know, you've got children to support, but it's become a system where it really does not promote roots. You know, it's materialist, consumerist, transient, you know, all those words. It is that. I mean, that's really what the American dream to me has become, and it has become a nightmare. (laughs) Well, I think you're right on some level, but I don't think that that applies across the board. And of course, I know you didn't mean that it did. Mm -hmm. I was thinking when I was when I was eight, and so this is one of those things. My we moved. My family moved me. 
we moved from the metropolitan Detroit area in Michigan to north, the Traverse City area, because my dad had graduated college. He went late, but he graduated college, and, and there was a job for him in that town, so we moved. Mm-hmm. Now, my family's been in Detroit. In De- my family's been in Detroit, well, forever, as far as I know. And my little clan was the one that moved. Mm-hmm. And then my dad did later on, but my cousins are still there. So when we were in Michigan a few years ago for my brother's funeral, all of my cousins came to the house. And then I was like, man, I mean, I was I was the sixth kid of this family. So we were all the time hanging out, but they're all still in Michigan. Mm-hmm. They're all still in the metro Detroit area. My aunt is still alive. And it's like I had a moment of genuine envy about what they had built, mm-hmm. that their kids are in this town, and that grand and the, the grandparents were all gone, but there there is a visible long history, and and they still have it, and that's and I know other people do, and and so I I think that's a valuable contribution to the idea of what community is. Is you've got to have more than. I think the roots in the community are a vital part of that. And in my little teeny tiny part of the world called Central Lake where I went to high school, I came in in ninth grade. Well, I, I came, I went to school with people who have been going to school together since kindergarten mm-hmm. who knew each other their entire lives and their parents knew each other their entire lives. So I'm, yeah. I'm the interloper. I'm the new guy. 40 years later, I'm still the new guy. But <laughs> there's something to that. And that's, a, yeah. that's an important consideration. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Were they, did they share a worldview? You know, I'm not saying they didn't have diverse opinions, you know, little things here and there, but were these people that you were hanging out with that had these roots and these connections and these familial ties, were they generally speaking kind of, you know, like a, like a, like a shared clannish thought process? I, ha- I don't know because we were there for the specific reason of my brother's funeral. So the occasion changes the conversation. Yeah. So I I I know what you're asking, yeah. and I don't know what the answer is. Probably to some degree, it's well, Detroit's pretty much the same, even these years on. Um, I think most of them are probably similarly minded politically, but that stuff didn't come up. Right. It was more just, you know, remembering the last, you know, rem- catching up on stuff we hadn't done and yeah. laughing about all the silly times in the backyard yeah. <laughs> playing big time wrestling. Because I think that would be necessary too. So for example, you know, I'm from Richmond, you know, my sisters, all my nieces and nephews, save one, um, my mom and dad, you know, extended family. So many people still live up there. Um, I'm the one who left. So, you know, hey, hypocrite, go back. Well, Richmond depresses me because it is not what it used to be. And I always say it's because I left. It's because I left. It went in the toilet. It's all because of me. Um, (laughs) But my thing would be, I love my family, but there is not a lot of social cohesion going on as far as like thought processes go, worldview, belief system. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm all for kith and kin, but there has to be some kind of something shared there too. So it's not just you have to be with your family. It's not just, you know, that guy's my cousin. He's my people or that person, you know, shares. 
it's a lot of pieces of the puzzle that happen to be missing. And I think in my family's case, and God bless them, I love them. But I think there was a lot of because of the generation my sisters and I are in and the way they raised their kids, there was a lot of just kind of trust in the public schools. Oh, yeah, you know, they're fine. It's a good school district. It's fine. So there wasn't a lot of deep conversations over the dinner table of what we believe and why we believe it and who we are. And I think those conversations have to happen or else, you know, all those ties, ties that bind, they're unfurling. So it has, there's so many things that has to have to happen. But um, so, yeah, that's one reason, one of many reasons I'm not going back to Richmond. I mean, I just, it feels like a foreign place to me, even with my family there who I love, but we're very, very different people. Hmm. Well, it, it's possible that it isn't the Michigan way. Because mm-hmm. I don't remember having those conversations. I remember, so I, I was in high school when Reagan was shot. My stepdad was, was a firm Reagan fan. Mm-hmm. And okay, well, I guess we're Reagan fans now. <laughs> and we didn't really talk about yeah. it. And, but, you know, when you were in 10th grade in high school, you, who, I mean, okay, someone was shot, that's bad. But I don't really care. I got a track meet. I got to go. Right. <laughs> like, whatever. The president wasn't important. It's like, I have. I got exams and I got track meets and I got stuff to do. So it was um, a simpler time. Well, it was a simpler time, it was. and nobody. <laughs> but this was not a conversation we had. Yeah. We just didn't just didn't talk about that. We also didn't talk about money, which is a big mistake. But that's another show. Um. All right, so let's move on a little bit because this is fun, but I don't want to get stuck here. Okay. <laughs> At some point, people listening to stories about mandated, by the way, illegally mandated mask wearing will, I hope, wonder what were they thinking? And in line with that wonderment, you recently reposted an article about a high school football game. Mm-hmm. The headline read poorly, and they always do reading that the football game was, quote, forced to end, end quote, due to one person not wearing a mask and refusing to leave. Name the person and explain why this is more than just a story about him. Well, it was uh, Ammon Bundy from, you know, the, the Bundy standoff from, gosh, what was that, three or four years ago? Those are the people that want to do the you know, the free range, you know, cattle grazing that has been, you know, part of uh, the Southwest for whatever. Ever. Yeah, ever. <laughs> you know, natural law or whatever. Just everybody's doing their thing out there. So, you know, I guess the, the deal was to kind of make an example of him. But um, to me, you know, I, I find it interesting. And you may have been the one who said this. Um, that commented that said, I find it interesting that he doesn't get tased, but the woman who was at the football game in Ohio at her son's football game, she gets tased. So that is interesting. You know, I, so for example, you know, when I am out maskless, I have been verbally accosted, if that's even a thing, three times, you know, just people lecturing me and yelling at me, telling me they wish I would die. And, um, it's always when I'm alone. I'm never with my kids or with my husband, my husband who has never been lectured to. So I find that interesting. I'm not really sure. I'm not saying it's like a feminism thing, but I also know plenty of women who haven't gotten lectured to, but I have. So I don't know if I just have like a target on my forehead that says, please hassle this woman. But with 
I don't know. I mean, it really doesn't even matter if it's Eamon Bundy to me because it is just indicative of the fact that it's just trying to kowtow people, you know, over something that anybody with a logical bone in their body just knows that <laughs> wearing a mask at a football game is not going to do anything scientifically, medically, whatever. You know, California just recently said you have to put your mask on in between bites or of, of food at restaurants. I mean, for the love of Pete, this is insanity. So, um, you know, I just think it's a way to uh, social engineer young people. So, for example, my kids are pretty, um, you know, Gen C kids. They give me hope because they're very skeptical, and I like that a lot. But they're also like, oh, Mom, just put on the mask. we got to go in the store. You know, sometimes they're like, just do it. You know, and I feel like it really is kind of – it's – it's turning the younger generations into like more complacent people. And I also feel like because most, Oh, see, there's the feelings. I should have said, I think, I think not feel, I think that, you know, church is playing along with this too. Uh, you know, just creates for a very weak Christian and um, a complacent compliant citizen. And I just don't think that's good for anybody. <laughs> you know, uh, especially what I think the future holds for the younger generations. So um, I just find it troubling all around. And the fact like a football game has to end, everybody's fun has to end supposedly because this one guy just won't play along. I mean, it's insanity, you know, when the, everybody at the football game should be saying, well, we're going to take off our masks too. You know, the Ohio football game where the lady got tased, That's that goes back to my community thing. I would like to think if I was there, I would be like, what the hell are you doing? Get your hands off of her. We're all taking off our masks. You know what I mean? This woman was the friend or co not colleague, whatever. She knew the other parents, you know, her kids were all on the same team as these other people. And everybody just sits there aghast from a distance filming it with their ca camera. That's what I'm talking about when I'm like, you need a community who is like, hell no, get your hands off of her. And if you're going to arrest her, you're going to arrest all of us. So I kind of got off the Bundy thing, but you may think there's more to it than that. Cause uh, I'm sure there were some other articles written about how he was handled was particularly cause he is, but I just see it as again, kind of all a symptom of the same thing. Insanity. Well, I think it is a story more about much more than just him. And because it was him, it made news. Right. And I did see the comment about why they didn't take, why didn't they taste him? But they taste her. I'm the one that said, because Amy Buddy doesn't travel alone yeah. and he's strapped. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and, and they know it. Um, I, th I think the commentary is that there's the resistance against it has at least equal resistance for it. Mm -hmm. and, and there are people willing I, to, to tase, to enforce, <laughs> enforce this. And, and that's, that carries some concern, and I, I think one of the things that might be the case, and there are people who study these things, and I'm not one of them, that the the long-term spring back from, say, your kids and my kids to this conditioning 
might might set things right. I don't know. I don't even know what that's called. And that to me right now was really important, but I think that these things do move this way. They ebb and flow. And that's probably one of the things to the politicians' great detriment is they never pay attention to that. Yeah. They have no long vision. Everything is about what can I get in my pocket today? Yeah. How can I grift from taxpayers even more to fund something that will never, ever change no matter how much currency you throw at it? It's become so symbolic, too. So, for example, let's talk about my kids for just a second. I will say, you know, my husband and I have crafted this little protective world for my kids. We homeschool, right? You know, our our homeschool co-op, it's secret location. You know, there's no masks, whatever. (laughs) Nobody's doing masks. We go to, I call it the underground church. We go to churches that do not have nobody's wearing a mask. I mean, you can if you want, but nobody's doing it. We are receiving the Eucharist from a shared chalice with a shared spoon. Um, This is not happening in all Orthodox churches, but there is resistance out there. So my kids are, I mean, they never have on a mask. So when I'm like, I'm not going to wear one into the food line, that's a grocery store here. They're like, mom, just put it on, you know, or or uh, whatever. They're just thinking we don't ever have to wear them because we're running in all these weird, like resistant circles. So, but to me, it's so symbolic, you know? So yeah, putting it on in certain places, I think is just absolutely um, crazy to me, like a football game, like church, right? Uh, like between bites. Yeah, like between, I mean, you know, people riding their bikes feverishly down the bike lane and breathing in their carbon dioxide and they're wearing, I mean, my goodness, when are people, when are we going to, when are these people going to be mocked en masse and rounded up? I don't, not soon enough, but did you, you know, what I think, and I don't know what, what particular orchestra it was, but there was a picture going around of, uh, some particular orchestra where everyone had on a mask and there was a hole, like a buttonhole cut oh, yeah. in, the, in the mask so that the person could play whatever his or her particular instrument was. I mean, obviously violin doesn't matter, but the wind instruments, they had holes cut in the masks. Well, golly, I've got to think that that's probably... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so maybe maybe somebody that's a black market opportunity to send those kinds of masks to California and make a buck. Yeah. Or you know even in you know some churches the choir doesn't have to have on the mask. Well, they're the ones spitting as more than anybody. You know, I I'm an alto. I used to sing in the choir. You know, there's spit flying around in there. Or the kids under X age don't have to. Who's the who's any more spittier and snottier and sneezier than little kids? You know, so. They just don't even make sense. You know, it's just, it's madness. Yeah, that part it is. (laughs) All right. I'm going to talk a little bit about a comment you made to me when I was on your show recently. But first, let's listen to Jake give us a word about his podcast, Tasting Anarchy. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. All right, I did mention that recently I was on your show and you made a comment to me 
and it may have been kind of a throwaway comment because I think you don't think too much about this because it's kind of just one of your thoughts. Okay. But it, but wow, my my, hey, this is interesting. I want to learn more about this. You said you are working on leaving the U.S. to settle in another country. So mm-hmm. why leave? Where are you intending to go? And what do we get wrong about this new location? Oh, that's a big one. Well, um, A, I'm leaving because, as I said earlier, I'm pretty black-pilled. I think things are going to get uh, pretty rough here, even if it isn't like full-on revolution. Um, I think it's just not going to be a place where my white, straight, Christian, southern, proud sons are going to have probably a fair shake. Um, so I'm going to leave so all you people can sort it out. <laughs> um, it really, you know, in a perfect world, we would uh, move someplace, you know, on a tourist visa for a few years, just kind of see what happens. It would be like, you know, killing a million birds with one stone, you know, foreign adventure, immersion, language immersion for the kids, you know, history, travel, you know, kind of taking ourselves out of the comfort zone and fleeing a possible insane, crazy, you know, America falling apart kind of scenario. So it's like, oh, we could do that. However, the American passport is not that great anymore. There's about Last time I checked, a couple weeks ago, they usually update it at the end of the month. So at the end of September, I think it was just over 30 countries on all of planet Earth where an American passport will get you in. Most of those places are, you know, not locales I would want to live, much less take my children. So um, that's scary in and of itself. I think anybody who just marinates on that for a second is very frightening because really what is tyranny you know it is forcing you to be a part of something and you cannot flee right you know i mean there is no escape that's why globalism is so scary because it would be the entire planet so that's right now we don't know where we're going but our goal would be to move to russia yeah, Russia. You used to be able to go there for three years on a tourist visa. Um, but right now their borders are closed to Americans. Some EU countries can go there, but you know, closed to us. Um, and if they do reopen, when people reopen these days, there's all sorts of weird rules that apply now that didn't used to. So I don't even know if there would be something called a three-year tourist visa. So it's just one of those things that 2020 has given to us in spades. It's just really hard to plan for anything, you know, much less the next year. Sometimes it's the next day it's hard to plan. So um, that is what we would want to do because we are Orthodox Christians. Um, we have an affinity for Russia. We went to visit there last year for three weeks. We have a few connections and friends there. And my children have been taking Russian for a year now, and they're pretty good at it. So um, now I know nothing. So I would be the lady standing there who, you know, her, the child is translating for her. So I would be that weird lady that we see around sometimes where the child's translating that would be me but eventually obviously if i would be there for any significant amount of time i would take classes because i you know i want to know the language so anyway that would be the goal and i don't know if i answered all the questions but that's the deal it's just kind of it seems like the stars are aligning to just do it because my husband and i've always wanted to give our kids that kind of experience but there were oh 
let me make one more point. There were always, my husband's pretty good at Spanish. He's from Texas and whatever. I wouldn't say he's fluent, but he's like a master at Spanish. So years ago, I mean, my oldest, my kids are 11, 12, 13 now. Um, you know, let's go live in the Dominican Republic. Let's go live in Chile. Heck, we even thought about Colombia because let's just live there and immerse them in the language or whatever. But they were always like, oh, well, there's baseball and there's church and there's co-op and there's neighbors. And there's this. I mean, I'm not saying I don't have friends. I'm not saying they're still not good people. But I mean, I just don't have the kind of community that I would keep me from ever leaving. Some people do and God bless them. And I hope they stay here and fight for what they have. I just don't have that. So to me, I'm like the whole woo flu. I'm back to calling it that, but either way, the whole woo flu 2020 insanity has just made me realize that, you know, I'm kind of a square peg in a round hole world all the time. So we may as well just whatever the saying is, poop or get off the pot. So that's what we want to do if Russia will ever open its borders. Okay. Well, the last question, and this is probably the one that's going to be interesting is, well, it's all interesting to me, but <laughs> what what do we, we being Americans, what do we get wrong about Russia? Well, first of all, I am not an expert. I will say that, which is fascinating because when I move there, hopefully, God willing, soon, um, you know, there's so much to learn. But, you know, I mean, Russia is a very, very, very old country. And what's the first thing most people say to me when I say, hey, my kids and I might be moving to Russia? They go, why would you want to move to a communist country? I mean, you know, that was a tiny fraction of their history. And obviously, there is not communism there anymore. And then my new thing would be, well, <laughs> They're way less socialist than the United States. That That's my new tact when people tell me that. But um, yes, they're still living with the ramifications of that. But it is a fascinating, deep country that is having a renaissance of traditionalism, conservatism, Orthodox Christianity. Is it a utopia of those things? Absolutely not. Okay. No place is going to be that. Okay. The world is too filled with fallen people and it is just the way it is. And geopolitics don't help sometimes too. Because what I've come to find out is people like me who are fans of Russia because they see it as a one of the only places left on planet earth that is just willing to tell Western imperialism to stick it where the sun don't shine. Uh, and they do. They do that often. But they also from what I've learned is they still pine for Western acceptance to a degree that is unhealthy. So um, they really, really want to be liked by the West. And I want to go there and say, you don't want to be liked by the West. Do your own thing. You're awesome. And you don't need NATO to tell you you're great or whatever, you know, they're, you know, they're an exciting, unique people and that have, they're actually pretty multicultural. I interviewed a guy who lives in Moscow the other day and, um, you know, they have all these, it's a huge country and they have all these different, you know, customs and, you know, dialects and yada, yada. It's just fascinating, but they still, and I think a lot of them still live under that cold war mentality where they really just want to be accepted by the superpowers. They want to be like as big as the biggest kid on the block. And to me, I'm like, just love what you have and, 
be happy and go to church and have lots of babies. That's kind of, if I move there, that's what I'm going to tell people. And they'll be like, oh, the crazy American. She's so crazy. But that'll be kind of my thing. <laughs> well, it, you know, it is a very interesting dichotomy to be a powerful country and still want to be liked by the other kids on the block. And that's yeah. that's that's a funny thing. So I think you mentioned between the orthodoxy and the community and Virginia, it sounds like there's probably a lot of, now this is going to be a weird thing for people who don't know what it means, a lot of Southern thinking, even though they're not in the South, in Russia. And I think that that would be something that also would appeal to you. Yeah, well, I wrote a blog a couple of years ago. I was doing a Boyd Cathy book review. And Boyd Cathy, for people who don't know him, he's a traditional Catholic. He and I, um, like he has a, he used to have a Putin for president (laughs) bumper sticker on his car. (laughs) So we bond about, you know, like uh, hymnography and, you know, saints and stuff like that or whatever. And um, he doesn't want to live in Russia. And he, of course, just has that bumper sticker on his car because it triggers people. But, you know, I was writing a book review about him and his book was called, um, oh my gosh, I'm spacing on the name of his book. It was by Scuppernong Press. I can't even look at, oh, The Land We Love. The Land We Love. So anyway, I'm writing this book review and, you know, he he mentions Russia sometimes in there. It's lots of excerpts from some of his best essays from over the years. And anyway, the point of me bringing all this up was that I think there are parallels, that there are a lot of similarities between the Russian people and the people of the South. Um, They were conquered under foreign ideologies. To me, you know, a lot of people from Croatia and Ukraine and whatever, they hate the Russians because, you know, oh, you know, the, the, the Finns hate the Russians because of communism and they did all this stuff. Well, I'm like, to me, the Russians suffered under communism worse than anybody. I mean, that was a Western-backed foreign ideology, you know, that comes from Europe, uh, pushed into that country, you know, with Russian support, of course, but with a lot of American money as well, pushed on that country. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're calling it the motherland and, you know, the, the chaffs of wheat and, you know, everybody's like brothers and sisters when all these people are like cobbled together and supposed to be like one. Well, to me, that's kind of what happened to the South. You know, this foreign ideology came in and said, you don't get to do what you want to do. And we're all going to be the union and we're going to say the pledge and you're going to like it. And it's all for, you know, the fatherland. So I, I see a lot of similar similarities there because, yeah, I just think historically we've experienced some of the same things. And to me, one of the reasons I'm a Southern traditionalist is I think the Southern tradition is valuable and wonderful and good and should be celebrated and promoted and fostered, just like I think Russian culture should be too. And it doesn't need any outsiders coming in and telling it what to do. And I think that is a very liberty perspective even if you don't like russia let russia do what the heck russia wants and that's kind of my thing and that's why you know some libertarians get under my skin is they're like oh liberty means you know you doing exactly everything that i want that you know i define as freedom you know whatever it's some debased <laughs> thing a glory hole or something well no, i don't want you missed <laughs> something there yeah i don't want glory holes in my hometown well then oh you're not gosh. a libertarian <laughs> well no 
I mean, that's, of course, an extreme example, maybe. But, um, you know, that's the point. Let everybody do their own thing. Let their freak flag fly. And that's really what, you know, secession would promote. And that is what happened after the Soviet Union. It didn't really fall. It, I mean, it just kind of ceased to be. I mean, it. everybody just started kind of doing their thing. So I think that's good. And if more people just minded their own business and did their own thing and didn't mind that, you know, whatever, Putin went to church or he banned a gay pride parade. Who cares? You know, if, unless you live there, what do you care? <laughs> and even if you do, maybe it's not important. Right. Yep. Live okay. and let well, live. That's, you know, that's, now that's a fine mantra. I made it up. It's all mine. It is all yours. And, but, you know, the, you know, I think the problem the politicians have with that is there's nothing to be gained in power or currency from letting that happen. Yes. And division gives them power. Absolutely. It sure does. And, 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 and we, we will not go down the rabbit hole of <laughs> casting and casting, you know, beating up on politicians because it'd be fun, but it's cheap shots and it's easy. We should do a whole well, episode sometime just called rabbit holes. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> <laughs> it would never end, but it would be fun. <laughs> It would Tune be in like tomorrow as yeah. we investigate this other rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. it would be fun. Be, you know what? That's a great name for a podcast. Oh my it gosh. It actually is. Whoa, man. All right. So moving on. Uh, I want to ask you just a couple of short answer questions because okay. this is kind of the, the fun, fun part of the show. All right. Of the five flavors sour, sweetie, 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 sour, sweet, <laughs> salty, bitter, or umami. Which one is your favorite? Salty. What's your favorite food? Oh my gosh. Like one item or like a genre? Or I guess that's not a word. A cuisine? Is that the word? <laughs> oh, one item. One item. So like I'm on a an island and I can only have one food forever? No. Or you, is it if like that's a, how you want to choose it, I mean, you, you answer as you wish. I'm just saying, what's your favorite food? Oh, my gosh. That's the hardest question you've asked me this entire interview. Can I pick well, a liquid? Go. Can I pick a liquid? Sure. Beer. Of course. <laughs> okay. What's your least favorite food? Um, at least I do not like beets. What sound do you love? Aw. Dogs barking, children laughing, the sounds of cicadas. Yeah. Southern what sound. Sounds. What sound do you hate? Karen's lecturing me to wear a mask. <laughs> what is your favorite food indulgence? Other than high calorie beer, ice cream. I love ice cream. Good answer. All right. You mentioned the book by the guy, and I want you to say it again, but are there – for anything that you have found interesting, books you would recommend to people to read for to for liberty or for Southern culture or for learning about Russia? Okay. Uh, let's tackle one at a time. Just Liberty, one of the most consumable, awesome books that I think is user-friendly and like the whole family could read. It's Tom Woods's. The Politically Incorrect Guide to American History. That is just an amazing book uh, for people who are, you know, oh, you know, I like Glenn Beck and I love the Constitution kind of thing, you know, but 
they're red pilled on some things, that's what I always suggest to people because that sends them down rabbit holes. So I think as far as liberty, just real palatable, that that would be my suggestion. Um, Southern culture, I would suggest Boyd Cathy's book, The Land We Love. That's great. And just because I read it, you know, fairly recently. And then um, I'll take my stand, which was written written by the agrarians, the um, the Vanderbilt literati who were like the generation like the sons of the Confederate veterans. They were at Vanderbilt University. In fact, I think the Abbeville Conference coming up in two weekends is, that's the topic they're going to be talking about. That book, it's the 90th anniversary of it and how right and prophetic they were and how we should have all listened to them. But um, that's an interesting book because it's written by different people. So it's all these different perspectives throughout the South, the whole kind of, they would call it like... um, they not just talk about, you know, it's not just like, oh, I wish, you know, granddaddy had won the war, that kind of thing. I mean, it's very highbrow writing, but they're short essays, so um, it's approachable in that way, too. But they talk a lot of, you know, agrarianism. They're talking about how, you know, people are getting away from the land. Things are becoming industrial, d- d- very, you know, technocratic, you know, all things that a lot of people still write about today. Um so that's a fascinating book. And then what was the other one? What other topic? That was it. Uh, well, li- Liberty, mm-hmm. um, Southern Culture, and Russia. Oh. But you, you don't well, have to give me any of them. I'll say for Russia, um, there's a book called Everyday Saints. And I think most of the saints they mention in there are Russian saints. Now, you would think, well, I'm not a Christian or I'm not into these saint people. But it's it's a history book so i think that may be a really good intro to to kind of find out what russia was before communism what you know the the baptism of the rus happened in 988 i mean russia's been around like a really long time and they've been christian a really freaking long time like communism was a blip so i think that may be a good introduction You know, even if I didn't believe in saints, you know, I still like stories of people and saints were actually living people. So maybe that book. And um, I forget the guy's name who wrote it, but it's called Everyday Saints. Well, I'll find that part out. I will have to Uh, confess about me forgetting. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, Father. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. Uh, I will put links to those books on the show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 109. How can people reach you and watch the Dissident Mama website? It is (laughs) dissidentmama.net. I actually bought the .com recently, and I just haven't figured out how to, like, make sure everything with people go to .net, like they get to .com. So anyway, Michael Bolden, the one time I met him, he made fun of me for that. So yes, it's dissidentmama.net. <laughs> um, you know, you can get to everything from there, you know, Twitter, Facebook. I actually try not to be on social media too much because I get sucked into those rabbit holes. But then um, I have a YouTube channel, which also has my podcasts. So you can find me, you know, whatever Apple podcasts, I put it all out on Libsyn. And then just recently, I think I had already mentioned that um, I'm going to really start trying to do interviews where you can see the people's faces. So anybody who wants to follow the Dissident Mama YouTube channel, you can get to that through my um my dissident mama webpage as well but so that you know subscribe smash the like button as they say (laughs) 
Right, and I'm actually going to put a link to the Abbeyfield Institute on the show notes page because they do fantastic work and they, they need all the recognition and eyeballs they can get. So Absolutely. Can I give one plug for them too? Of course. They're, they're starting to do little short, like six to 10 minute videos, kind of in the PragerU vein where, you know, it's these fun, catchy little graphics, but with statistics and, you know, giving people truthful information. And it's not, you know, at an elementary level, but it's... It's the kind of information that is a great door open to, hey, I've never thought about it that way before. Oh, wow, that's not how I learned it. And they're just, I, I think they've only done one, but if you can um, check out the one they've done with Phil Lee, who is a wonderful human, and, you know, support them because I wouldn't be the wonderful human I am today if it was not for the Abbeville Institute. So they're a great organization. No, they really are. I've become very impressed with them. Well, I think that's it. That's all I've got. Thank you for making time for me today. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Dan. And we actually even went under my expected time budget. So (laughs) we're we're good to go. My husband will be shocked. (laughs) I like to wonder if you're you're sick or you're not feeling well or you didn't talk long enough. No, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful evening. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I will put the links to the books Rebecca mentioned on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 109, as well as a link to her blog, Dissident Mama, and a link to the Abbeville Institute, Abbeville is very much a Southern culture institute. Americans have been conditioned to think the South are rubes and are backward. Donald Livingston and Brian McClanahan are two of the historians there, and you'll find quickly that the South is American tradition. October is the start of baking season, another kind of tradition. Get your spices and flavorings such as whiskey barrel smoked sugar or black onyx chocolate sugar or Saigon cinnamon from Savory Spice. Use my link, culinarylibertarian.com slash Savory Spice. Learn why Savory Spice has sold over 1.3 million pounds of spices. Share this episode around on your social media feeds and rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcatcher. Have a wonderful week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.